Ben Shapiro's audacity to speak the truth about political issues, as well as his analysis of current affairs, has earned him a place on the list of household names. His latest book, The Authoritarian Moment, is not only timely, but insightful and a bit frightening as he looks to where this is all headed, unless we can stop it. Shapiro warns not to expect the government to fix what's broken. He and CAP President Kathy Herod sat down for a compelling conversation. Here now is Kathy Herod and Ben Shapiro. This episode of Engage Arizona. My special guest is Ben Shapiro. Ben has one of the most listened to podcasts of our time. The Daily Wire is a go-to source for real news in today's culture. He's among the most important voices in this cultural moment, cutting through the deceit of the left and the loud dictates of mainstream media. Ben cuts to the chase and tells it like it is. He's an attorney, a critical thinker, writer, speaker, and more. Most importantly, he sees life with the perspective of being a dad and a husband. He's also the keynote speaker for the Center for Arizona Policy's annual CAP Family Dinner on April 5th. Ben, thanks so much for joining us on Engage Arizona. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I'm going to talk about issues, but first I want to talk about your latest book, The Authoritarian Moment. Um, First, define what you mean by authoritarianism. I think that's a new um, word for a lot of people. And so authoritarianism is just the basic idea that you can be compelled to do things that are violative of your rights by a superior power. And that power is not going to be bound by any code of law. There's not going to be checks and balances. There's just going to be a top-down decision made as to how you ought to live your life. And your rights are of of very little consequence. Your individual decision-making is of very little consequence. And the left sort of likes to attribute this to the right, right? They call us fascists. They suggest that we want to control how you live your life. But the reality is that the sort of authoritarianism that that we've been seeing of recent vintage has been coming mainly from institutions, social institutions, and governmental institutions that are, that are controlled by the left. Most of the areas in which we feel that we are being compelled in life today are areas that are driven by a left wing that now controls major corporations, that now controls Hollywood, that now controls the educational system, that controls large swaths of the government, in which you can basically be told what to do, and the checks and balances feel like they are completely gone. The left likes to say that Donald Trump was an authoritarian um, because they, they like to call everybody on the right an authoritarian, and they like to point to January 6th as a, as a sort of authoritarian moment. And what I say is that the authoritarian moment is a little broader than that. It's the, it's the belief that you can be compelled to do whatever the left wishes you to do, and they will use every tool at their disposal throughout the culture in order to achieve that, that goal. You dedicate the book to your children. You wrote, um, your children who deserve to grow up in a country that values the freedom promised by the Declaration of Independence and, the Const- and guaranteed by our Constitution. I think many of us feel that way. Is that why you wrote the book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that a lot of the freedoms that have come under attack, and, and frankly, I feel a lot better about those freedoms living in a state like Florida than I did when I was writing the book in a state like California. Um, but the, the, the freedoms that, that are under attack in places like California are very core. We're talking about freedom to practice your religion. We're talking about the right to private property. We're talking about the ability to raise your children as you see fit without, without the state determining that you're a bad parent because you believe that boys are boys and girls are girls. Right? These are very, very core things. And it feels a lot as the, to a lot of people correctly as though the institutions in our society, at least at the national level, are now dedicated to extirpating those freedoms. You're right that you speak your views for a living, but so many others in virtually every other profession, they're silenced or they're afraid to speak up. Um, How can that individual that's working in a company not be silenced? 
I mean, the first thing you have to do is you have to identify allies inside the company who believe like you do. So one of the things I talk about at length in the book right, is the, the concept of renormalization. The question is how we sort of got to this point. And the answer is that if you have a very strong and cohesive minority, very aggressively pursuing its goals, they can take over an entire company. They can take over an entire institution just by insisting that their way is the only way. And if you cave to them, then they'll leave you alone. You can make, they can basically harass institutions into moving in their particular direction. Well, the same is true in reverse. There's no reason why people who are conservative have to sit there and take it. You could get together with, say, 30, 40, 50% of your company and say to the management, no, we don't really wish to attend your diversity, equity, and inclusion seminar in which we learn that white people are inherently racist. Instead, we, we object to this, and you're going to have sort of a rebellion on your hands inside the company if you continue this. You can't do it as an individual. It does require collective action. What's the wrong way to fight back? You talk about the right way to fight back. What's the wrong way to fight back? I mean, I think there are a couple of wrong ways to fight back. One is to rely on government as the chief bulwark against this sort of stuff, because government, the more power you give it, the more power will be wielded against you by that same government when it's taken over by people you don't like, uh, which is one of the continuing patterns in American life. You'll see people attempt to set up a government restriction uh, that, that allows them to, for example, invade private property of companies we don't like in order to make those companies do what we want them to do. And then the minute the left gets in charge, they take that and they immediately leverage it against companies that we do like a little bit more. And that, that's a real problem. Uh, that, that is one way that, that I think is, is wrong to go about it. The regulation has to be very carefully tailored and government is a blunt instrument. So that, that's, you know, it's easy to, to misuse that. Uh, that's one way. The other way is to kind of spit into the wind. And that means that very often, you know, you'll see people on the right and they'll say, why don't you just be stronger? Why don't you stand up? And if it means you lose your job, you lose your job. And it's like easy for you to say, you're not the one who has to put money, you're not, you're not the one who has to have bread on the table. Uh, the, the notion that, that you're going to stand up to your multi-billion dollar company and tell them, I refuse to engage in this diversity, equity, and inclusion course, and then you lose your job over that, that's, that's very difficult. It's not, first of all, it's not going to achieve your goal. All it's going to do is achieve their goal of weeding out people who disagree with them and firing them. So the, the mistake would be to run directly into the line of fire. In the closing in your book, you write that you're worried about um, worried for America on a bone deep level, and that as a dad, it's your job to protect your kids from this authoritarian culture. How do you do that? Speak to the dads out there. How, how do you do that? I mean, first of all, I think you have to militantly defend your right as a parent, and this is what we're starting to see. The left has really decided to turn parents into a voting block, which is the dumbest political decision of my lifetime. Basically, saying your kids don't belong to you; they belong to us. And so we are going to indoctrinate those kids into critical race theory and radical gender theory and sexual theory that, that you may disagree with as a parent and you have no business. We, we, we won't even tell you we're doing it with your kids. That is, that is the dumbest move they can make, but it means that we have to be super aggressive and defensive of, of our children and how we raise our kids. You need to find communities to live where people generally share your values and aren't interested in hijacking your kids and turning them against you. It means that you need to inculcate in your own kids a belief in in basic freedoms like freedom of speech and the ability of reason to suss out conflicts without having to use government compulsion. Now, all these things I think are important. Is that part of um, moving into a, a community where you know that your children can thrive? I mean, I think people, parents have to make that decision. Do you live in California or do you live in a friendlier state? I'm a big fan of the big sort. I think the big sort is a very good thing. I think that the people, I've been encouraging everybody who is of conservative values in California, get out while the getting is good. Because the reality is that California is not coming back. It is, it is a lost state. It is gone. And you're wasting your vote over there. I mean, not only are you raising your kids in a worse environment, you're also wasting your vote over there. Move to a friendlier state. Move to a purple state like Arizona or like Florida. Trend those states red. Help protect kids in those states. And, uh, and stop wasting your vote in a, in a, in a place that, that has turned into sort of a, a trash heap like, like California. 
Well, and we in Arizona always say we need to put up billboards. Don't California our Arizona. Yes, come here, but don't bring California values. Bring your real values because um, that you know that that's a concern here. Is that how how is it going to um, color our state with the the California values coming in, not the Californians who hold those conservative values? Well. Um, before I leave the book, I just want to say to everyone, um, if for no other reason, go get Ben's The Authoritarian Moment. Um, the last part of the book for our children is some of the most eloquent um, statement writing I've seen on what we need to be doing and the courage we need to have and to speak out to, for our children. And so I can't say enough. It's just some of the best writing that I've, I've seen in quite a while. So thank you for that, Ben. Um, that, that's a book that's really needed in our culture today. I appreciate it. It's very kind of you. So let's talk about issues. Obviously, the war on Ukraine. Um, what do you see as the scenarios on the horizon? I think Putin's probably still shocked that the war is still going on. But what, what do you see is gonna, going to happen? So I think the, the, the question right now is whether Putin is going to take away the message that the West is going to crack or whether he is going to be led to understand that the West is not going to crack. And that's a, that's a major question right now, because it, it is unlikely at this point that Putin, that Putin gets his heart's desire and totally collapses the regime of Ukraine, puts in a puppet dictator, and is able to maintain any sort of solidarity there with Russia. Uh, There's just too much resistance in Ukraine. Even if you were to completely occupy the state, it would take up an inordinate amount of his attention and an inordinate amount of his military prowess in order to do so. And so he's looking for an exit, you would imagine, but just an exit that gets him most of, of what he wants. Meanwhile, if you're the West, you don't want to give Putin any of those things. You want to deny him access to the regions that he has grabbed control over. You want Ukraine to maintain its independent status away from Russia. You don't want to see them enshrined in their constitution, things like we'll never join the EU or we'll we'll never join NATO. The real problem is for Ukraine. So right now, if you're Ukraine, you're looking at the West and you're saying, guys, we want to be on your side, but you're not shipping us jets. So what's the story here? Like you're giving, you're giving us enough weaponry that we can basically stave off the Russians for a certain period of time. But everybody sort of acknowledges that the longer the war goes on, the worse it is for the Ukrainians. I know there's been this new logic that the longer the war goes on, the worse it is for the Russians. And that's true, but it can be true for both. And on a comparative level, it's worse for the Ukrainians than it is for the Russians. I mean, it's worse for the Ukrainians than it is for the Russians because the Russians have a lot more material that they can expend before they lose. And so the the you know basic calculus here from Putin has to be, we have to make it clear to him, you're not going to win this war outright. And so you need to come to the negotiating table to to reach some sort of solution. One of the things I fear is some cracks in the NATO alliance with regard to, for example, Russian oil and natural gas. I don't think it's an indefinite plan for Germany to be cut free of Russian natural gas and oil. Uh, I'm also deeply fearful that the Biden administration seems unwilling to go. I'm not talking about establishing a no-fly zone. I oppose a no-fly zone, but I don't think Russia should be allowed to establish its own no-fly zone with regard to Ukraine. And the notion that we're not going to transfer aircraft over to Ukraine so they can help to continue to battle for the skies. Once Russia achieves total air superiority, if they're able to achieve that, the war effectively is over. The great surprise of the war is that they didn't do that in the first 48 hours. And, and so the fact that that continues is the reason that, that Kiev is still in, in Ukrainian hands at this point. Have you been surprised or uh, some of the voices on the right that seem to almost side with Putin or that, that this moral authoritarian you know, regime of Putin that, I mean, I, I, you know, I keep trying to kind of dig into that a little bit because it seems so bizarre to me that anyone on the right would be at all sympathetic to Putin. I mean, is that, yeah. I mean, how do you I'm see that? I'm surprised by it. Yeah. I'm surprised by it. The only reason I think that that might be happening is because there's such a level of distrust in our institutions and, and the authorities. And that distrust has been widely earned. That I think people just distrust anything that's that's being said by the White House at this point. So they say, okay, precisely the opposite. If the White House says Putin's going to attack, it's probably because 
they're not going to attack. And then Putin attacks. And it's like, well, the White House is now saying that Putin is committing human rights violations. Well, if the White House says it, it must not be true. Now, I think that we have to be very careful on the right of being reactionary when it comes to, you know, what to believe and what not to believe. Yes, sometimes the White House is, is fibbing. Sometimes they're not telling the truth. And sometimes they are telling the truth. And it's up to us to determine you know, when the White House is telling the truth and when they're not. I think one thing that we can safely say is that Russia very rarely tells the truth uh, and they have very little incentive to do so. So as much as I dislike Joe Biden and as much as I dislike the current White House and the occupant of it, if I'm asked to to choose between do I trust Vladimir Putin or do I trust Joe Biden, that's not much of a choice. I mean, Vladimir Putin literally murders people on foreign soil on a regular basis and throws people out of w- windows in his own country. Like that, that's not <laughs> that doesn't seem like somebody who I'm going to trust when it comes to uh, his his statements on foreign policy. I mean, the speech that he gave about why he was invading Ukraine was a, a wild piece of propaganda. I mean, suggesting that Ukraine was not a sovereign nation. So, I mean, they're still saying that this is not an invasion. If you're mirroring the exact positions of Putin, you're not saying, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of both sides. I'm trying to figure it out. If you're saying like, no, Putin's totally right. And you know what? He has every right to Ukraine. And what are we doing getting involved? And it's really our fault. Uh, then I, I recommend that you take a harder look at, um, at at how you're reacting to the news. Exactly. Let's talk about the Trump factor um, in the midterms. Is Trump looming over this election cycle as much as some think? Is he going to swing elections or how? What the dynamics, Biden, or is it a red wave year or not, but is is Trump going to mess it up is basically what no, I'm asking. I, I don't think Trump is going to mess it up. I don't think he has the, the ability to mess this one up, nor the incentive to, to mess this one up. The, the only weight that Trump has really right now is in primaries. Uh, and he doesn't have the power to endorse. He has the power to destroy. So I think that if he openly attacks a candidate in a primary, uh, then that hurts the candidate. But we'll have to see what happens with, for example, Brian Kemp in Georgia, right? Brian Kemp in Georgia is running a very hotly fraught uh contested primary with David Perdue, who just lost the Senate seat over in Georgia, in large part because President Trump told people not to vote in Georgia because it's a waste of time. Uh, And so Perdue is now running with Trump's endorsement against Brian Kemp because Trump is mad at Brian Kemp. Right now in the polls, Kemp is up. And so if Kemp is able to to win that primary and then go on and beat Stacey Abrams, as he should, uh, then I think that that would be a a real blow to the idea that that Trump has sort of kingmaking power uh, or at least total destructive power in primaries. And that would have some ramifications for 2024, because right now I think the the going theory is that Trump is so powerful inside the Republican party that if he declares, nobody will run against him in a primary specifically because he will wreck them. Not because nobody could beat him, but because he'll be so damaging to somebody in the primary in 2024, that even if they emerge, he'll have, he'll have undermined trust that they have with the Republican party more generally. Now, I think that there's still a lot of truth to that. I I think that Trump wields enough power in a presidential primary where he himself is running uh, that that could, that could be a different mathematic than him just sort of endorsing from the outside. Um, but I, I don't think, I'm less worried, let's put it this way, I'm much less worried about 2022 in terms of Republican prospects than 2024 in terms of sort of Trump intervention, how do we pick, what do we do? 2022, I think, will be a red wave just because it's going to be a referendum on Democrats. And the way elections work is whoever an election is a referendum on loses. In 2016, it was a referendum on Hillary Clinton. The media thought it would be a referendum on Trump. It was not. In 2018, it was a referendum on the Republicans. The Republicans lost. In 2020, it was a referendum on Trump. Trump lost. In 2022, it's going to be a referendum on the Democrats, and the Democrats are going to get shellac. And do you think the American people, I think they're discerning enough that in Arizona, a uh, gallon of gas is getting uh, daily is getting closer and closer to $5 a gallon, um, that the Democrats attempt to blame that on Putin. I don't see that playing out. Um, what are you seeing from your perspective? No, that's right. I, I think that bottom line is no matter who is in the White House, you get the blame for what's going on. And you, you can try to blame somebody else for that. And sometimes it may be true. I mean, the fact is that the 75 cent jump that we've seen in the last four weeks is largely due to what's happening in Russia, Ukraine. The problem is that the 
dollar jump that we saw before that over the course of the year was under Joe Biden and there was no Vladimir Putin invasion. And that was due to inflationary policy. And that was due to regulations on oil and natural gas and all the red tape and all that. People see that. And they can see that this administration is bifurcating its message. On the one hand, they're saying things like, well, you know, oil and natural gas, we need the production and it's not our fault. It's Putin's fault. And on the other hand, they're like, we need you to stop using oil and natural gas. We need to shift over to green energy. We can all see that happening. We're not morons. And so I think most Americans see that. I think they also see the continuing crisis at the southern border, which continues to be ignored by the mainstream media, except sporadically. And that has not abated in any serious way. I think people in Arizona can see that as well. It's going to be a very, very bad year for, for Democrats come 2022, I think. Let's hope so. What about the forecast for 24 as far as the leading contenders? So, I mean, listen, I if Trump runs again in 2024 and he's the nominee, I'll vote for him against Joe Biden. I would much prefer he not be the nominee. I think that, that some fresh blood would be good. Uh, I think Ron DeSantis in Florida is clearly a leading contender for that. He's done a stellar job in the state of Florida. He comes from a swing state where he has moved to the state that Donald Trump won by 100,000 votes in 2016 to a state that Trump won by 400,000 votes in 2020. Ron DeSantis won his last gubernatorial race by about 35,000 votes against Andrew Gillum. He's going to win his upcoming gubernatorial race with huge, huge numbers. I'd be shocked if he, if he wins by less than 5% in that race, which in Florida is a really big number. The state has trended red very, very strongly. Uh, and the legislature is entirely controlled by Republicans. DeSantis is a combative guy. He knows how to fight the media, but he also sort of picks his spots. I'm a big fan of Governor DeSantis. I think he'd be a great candidate. There are other candidates out there who I think would be really good. Tom Cotton from Arkansas, I think would be excellent. Uh, I, I think that, you know, if it had not been for some of the, uh, you know, issues of 2020, frankly, Doug Ducey would have been a fine candidate. Like there, 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 are, a lot of, there are a lot of different sort of, candidates who are out there. Uh, I think, you know, obviously Ducey is no longer viable as, as a presidential candidate. There, there are a bunch of other candidates who are out there right now who are interesting and compelling and don't bring the negatives that Trump brings. If, if 2024 is a, is a referendum on whether Donald Trump is angry about what happened in 2020, it's not going to go well for Republicans. It has to be a referendum on the Democrats. It must be. If it is not a referendum on Joe Biden, Republicans are in trouble. Well, and on the Ron DeSantis front this week, he basically told the Disney Corporation to go pound sand. That's um, right. Yeah, he certainly stood up to Disney over the, the, you know, such a simple law that says you can't tell kindergartners through third graders in the schools about sexuality issues. I mean, common sense. Um, and the woke corporations wanted him to veto it. Well, let's turn to abortion and the life issue. We know that the U.S. Supreme Court by the end of June is going to um, decide on the Dobbs case, the, the Mississippi 15-week limit on abortion. We're on the verge of passing a 15-week limit in Arizona in case um, Roe doesn't get overturned. It, we're one of those states, if Roe gets overturned, our pre-Roe law, we contend, will go back into effect. But any, uh, we know we shouldn't predict, especially as lawyers, we should not predict what the Supreme Court's going to do. But what, um, any prediction or, um, on what you think the court will do? I mean, I think they will literally and figuratively split the baby. Um, I, I think that the the you know basically there's there's three possible outcomes. One is they just uphold Roe in its entirety and they reject the Mississippi law. The second is they uphold the Mississippi law and they just reject Roe and they say, okay, this is now back at the state level and the viability standard is gone. That's the the current going standard is the viability standard under Roe, the undue burden standard under Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So they could theoretically just get rid of that whole framework. They could say that none of this makes any sense, which it doesn't, and it's completely created from whole cloth. They could get rid of it. Uh, I think that Justice Roberts is unlikely to facilitate that sort of, of outcome because I don't think he has the stones to do it, frankly. Uh, and I don't know that you have five votes uh, from the other five members of the court, including Barrett and Kavanaugh particularly, uh, to actually overturn Roe. So my guess is what you're going to end up with something that looks very much like Roe, where you have four votes for one thing and three votes for another thing and five votes for the basic contention that the Mississippi law is, is legitimate, but we are not going, we're going to draw some other sort of standard 
And we'll leave it up to the states as far as it hard. It's not birth. It's, it's not birth and it's not conception. It's somewhere in between. And we're going to let you have some wiggle room, but it can't be before the, say, first 10 weeks. They'll just make something up and because that's what they do. Uh, so that, that'd be my assumption is that they come up with some sort. The, the thing that was amazing about the actual oral arguments in that case is that the court kept looking for a way out and none of the lawyers were giving them a way out. So on the one hand, you had the, the folks on the left against the Mississippi law saying you have to choose in binary fashion, pro row or anti row. And then you had people on the right saying the exact same thing. You have to choose pro row or anti row. Nobody was saying that there's any sort of meeting of the minds in the middle here. And so it'll be interesting to see what sort of nonsensical standard the Supreme Court crafts in order to uh, avoid the uh, avoid the political blowback, because that that really has been, I think, Justice Roberts chief characteristic on the court is trying to avoid political blowback. Ironically, he's created significantly more political blowback by attempting to avoid it than he would have if he just stuck to the law. Well, and we've seen that in so many areas. I mean, the whole issue of religious freedom, the cake bakers, the florist. I mean, that the um, Roberts takes the path of least resistance in his mind, um, but yet it just creates more problems and creates more cases, and the, the lower courts don't know what to do. Um, That's so, 100% right. Yeah. The religious freedom cases are a mess because of Roberts. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 I mean, like, like deciding the cake bakers case, the, the masterpiece cake shop case, on the basis of artistic expression, as opposed to freedom of speech, which it really should have been, or freedom of religion, which it totally could have been, Instead, deciding it on the basis of artistic expression is just an absurdity. It's ridiculous. Meanwhile, you have Justice Gorsuch, right, in, in, in the, the case with regard to the civil, extending the Civil Rights Act to apply to transgenderism, which is obviously anti the text of the law, trying to draw what's going to end up being, look, I think, looking like the Utah Compromise. Again, all these people, I think, are being too smart by half. Exactly. Well, we talked a little bit about parents already, but in in Arizona, we're certainly fighting for two bills to strengthen parents' rights in our public schools. What we're seeing the most almost is kids kids being given surveys without parental knowledge and ask, being asked personal family questions. You know, we could go on and on about what's going on in parents' rights. We've seen what happened in Virginia. Do you see that happening throughout the country, that parents really have woken up in a, in a new way and are engaging, and it doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat, they're parents, and they're concerned yes. about what, what teachers and what administrators are trying to do to take over their children. Yeah, it's the single greatest political shift that I have seen, maybe in my lifetime, to turn parents into a political bloc. That's an amazing shift. No one was ever stupid enough to do this before, to just attack parents, qua parents, and say, no, 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 we're the experts, we're going to educate your children how we see fit, doing the Terry McAuliffe routine. You don't have an interest in, in how your children are educated. And they really believe this. I mean, Jen Psaki came out from the White House yesterday and she said it was horrific that the state of Florida wanted to ban kids K through three from learning from their teachers without parental permission about gender identity and sexual orientation. We're talking about five to eight year olds here. And, and the White House was saying this is horrific. OK, good luck with that message. This is a 90 percent issue. Now, I don't know many parents at all, unless you are a parent who is gay or transgender and you want your standard forced on every other kid, then I don't know who exactly is standing out there going, no, 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 I definitely want to just, I want to abdicate all responsibility for raising my child with any level of values at the age of five to a bunch of politically driven woke teachers from the NEA who get their, their cues from TikTok. Makes sense to me. Like, the, the fact that the, the Democrats are willing to die on this hill, man, I, 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 you know, I thought defund the police was dumb politics, but, but dying on the hill of parents don't have authority over their kids is really, really insanely stupid politics. Exactly right. Um, well, you know, you, you've made this, the family the business decision to leave California. Just um, how's the move gone? Um, how, has it been a, a good, positive move? Are, you're in Florida now? Yeah, we're in Florida. F okay. Florida's phenomenal. So my company is in Tennessee. Okay. Um, so we have about 170 employees in Tennessee. And then we've got about 10 employees down here in Florida with me. And uh, Florida is 
fantastic. It's fantastic. I mean, it's it, the, not living in a blue state is great. But first of all, even the people who are Democrats talk with the Republicans here. And what, what you'll notice is that in majority blue states, like heavy majority blue states, people who are Democrats don't like talking with Republicans. In red states, Republicans will talk with Democrats as a general matter. Uh, and, and so there, there's just more comedy. Uh, there, there's less restrictions on life. I mean, obviously, I saved a bunch of money on my taxes, but the public services are better. There's less crime. There's less homelessness. Right. Uh, on just the quality of life level, it is so much better than California was. My wife and I look at each other pretty much every day and we're like, why did we not make this move five years earlier? Uh, and uh, I'm just glad we made it now. We made it while our kids are young. So the good news is that only our oldest is really going to remember living in California. <laughs> well done. Well, we're very much looking forward to having you at our Cap Family Dinner next month. As I mentioned, the book is The Authoritarian Moment. You can get it um, at, at major booksellers. Um, we encourage people to get the book. We encourage people to join us on April 5th in um, Phoenix, in Paradise Valley, for to hear more from Ben in person. Uh, some of the most insightful commentary that you're going to hear on what's going on in the culture. The date is April 5th again. AZPolicy.org is where you can find out the information. And Ben, we'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks so much hey, for taking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Engage Arizona. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and give a review on any podcast platform you use. For more information, visit azpolicy.org.